Hello and welcome to episode 42 of The Figure, a podcast about lifelong learning in that each week we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future, hosted by Georgia Bargain and Charlotte Lorimer. <laughs> Ta-da! Ta-da! <laughs> New intro, still getting used to it. <laughs> what have you been up to in the last two weeks? What have I been up to? Oh, did this really cool thing. Um, it's called a Franco Manca Masterclass. And um, they don't advertise it because it's too good, basically. <laughs> you go to um, one of the Franco Mancas, like Richmond, Brixton, Ealing, I think, do it. It's £30 a head, and you pretty much have unlimited pizza, bottomless drinks, learn how to make the pizzas, you make your own, and then they give you a goodie bag. That sounds amazing. And you leave pretty drunk. Because they just keep topping up your glass the whole time. How good and is how, that? And how did your pizza dough making skills go? Awesome, obviously. And did you, you flip the whole thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You stretched it? That was, that's the exact motion. No one can see this, but Charlotte's kind of like doing well, this. I know this very well now yeah, from my brother making all of his the, huge 20-inch exactly. pizzas. Exactly, so Charlotte's a pro and literally, no, no, that's not. literally it. <laughs> that's literally it though. I don't know how he does it. When you come know. up and see him for his birthday, you will be amazed at how he does these pizzas. So for anyone who doesn't know, my brother has a pizza business, which is in mm. a Citroen 1971 van called Southern Slice. And I've been helping him a bit with some manic evenings, selling 34 pizzas in two and a half hours. Wow. And they're huge pizzas as well. Yeah. They're not like... So normally ones. you sell them by the slice. Yeah. But for this event, lots of people came with their whole families and wanted the whole pizza. And oh, sometimes wow. they ordered two. So it was... Gosh. It was an exhausting evening, but it was uh, very fulfilling. Good. All except that we didn't get filled up with pizza because we sold the entire thing. Wow. Everything. You sold everything. Everything, yeah, we completely sold out. Wow, amazing. That's really good. Yeah. What have you been listening to, watching, reading? Any recommendations on that front? Yes, I have a lot. Um, the first This one... is going to be a problem with doing it every two weeks. Because yeah. the the list is just going to be even... It's going to be double. Well... Are you being more selective? Well, I, I, I thought... Of, I chose an interesting one, which is... Uh, I went to the Tower of London last Sunday and we had a, a tour and everything. Um, Which we'll talk about later on. And it was great. Um, but it sort of got me into the bug of all my obsessive historical stuff. Great. And ended up listening to two podcasts, an hour long each, about the genealogy of Richard III. So do you remember that he was found in that car park in Leicester like his bones in 2012 and he'd been missing like they, didn't, they hadn't found him obviously no like that years. passed me by so um this incredible uh geneticist called Dr Turi King was the one her team discovered um his body in September 2012 and so it was really interesting listening to what was the of name of the podcast lectures on that it was on BBC Sounds okay we'll um, link it in the show notes you search Dr. Turi King it's about T-U-R-I and then I got on to she's also done a lot of work on Jack the Ripper um, as well oh. and, and just talking about how you actually prove that people are related to each other that whole process is really interesting I really want to do that genetic testing thing mm, you know, I think you... a lot of people do yeah you've got 23andMe yes yeah would yeah. you want to do that um yes I do, but I don't know. People obviously question the accuracy of it because in order for it to work, you have to have someone else that has similar genetics to you also do it because the way you prove where you're, how you're related or where you're from is by comparison with someone else and their genetic code. And also just because you're, people move around a lot and immigrate just because one country's come up doesn't mean you're actually mm. necessarily from there. Because someone else that they've connected you, like, compared oh, you to, also okay. may not be from there. Um, but, like, but I guess it's, it's an getting, interesting It's probably park, getting more it? and more accurate, though, isn't it? The more mm. people who do it. Yeah, true, true. Where do you think... Do you think there'd be any surprises in there for you? I know that I'd have Danish, because my... Let me get this right. Great-grandmother was Danish. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And... It wouldn't surprise me if there was other Scandinavian things mm. in there, being blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Yeah, probably. Uh, I don't know. And then a mix of 
Scotland, England. I don't think there's any Welsh. What about you? What do you think? You'd I, have. I definitely have some Welsh. Um, I'd probably have a lot of German and East Europe. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it would be interesting to find out. Mm, definitely. Yeah. And any other things that you've been watching? Um, Stranger Things, really good. Third season. Also, fun fact, Millie Bobby Brown has her own Converse range that's just come out. That's really cool, too. Great. What does it look like? Um, yeah, they're quite cool, quite quirky. They're very, like, millennial, 15-year-old, but they're quite cool. So they're not based on Stranger Things? They're just no, done no, no, by her? No, no, it's just her. Yeah, okay. it's just her. Great. Yeah. Another one that I have uh, resisted <laughs> of your recommendations. Do you think I'd like it? Mary doesn't think I'd like it. I'd, I don't think you would like it because it's a bit, there's times where it's a bit scary, but really clever. Okay. So the storyline is interesting You it's, and it's very bingeable. Okay. Um, so you might like it for mm. that. Um, but yeah. So I've gone back to repeating uh, certain things that I love and... I think, oh, this was sparked by listening to Front Row, which is an amazing BBC Radio 4 mm. programme. And anyone who listens to it is going to go, how have you not discovered this before? But it's similar into Women's Hour in that they can tell you lots of things that are going on culturally that are really interesting. Mm. So they normally have an author or an actor and then they explore things like the politics of blacking up in opera or... Mm. Um, how to go and watch a Shakespeare play. It's mm. all culture. It's really great. And they had Candice Bushnell, who's the author of Sex mm. and the City on, and she was talking about her new book, which, to be honest, doesn't sound amazing, but it then made me think, I'm going to go back and watch the first ever episode of Sex and the City. Oh, yeah. Because they were talking about connections with Fleabag, and I thought, ah, really? I'm not really sure about that. Yeah, and then I watched Harry it. Harry talks to the camera. The breaking the, of the fourth wall. In the first three seasons, I think. Or two seasons. I think it's the first two seasons. Yeah. But it is hilarious and it's so clever and well crafted. Mm. And mm. it just makes me, it's reminded me of how much I love that show. Mm. And obviously, there are things that you do differently now, but it is so funny. And she meets Big because she's come out trying to have sex like a man. So she's having casual sex as, as part of her mm. uh, column, ca- carriers. And she trips and her bag falls out and all of her condoms like go all over the pavement. Oh, is that how she meets Big? Yeah, and then he comes and helps her and picks everything up. Uh. And then he does this all the suave moves where she can't get a taxi. And so he gives her a lift with his lovely driver. And I mm. can't remember what he's called, but he becomes a kind of little minor character always in the background um and then there's other things like Miranda is trying to get an invitation to this dinner party and they mistakenly think that she's a lesbian oh I remember that and so then she because she's finally got this invitation she just goes along with it and there's just all sorts of great discussions of politics of I think as well it's that thing of as you get older you appreciate it more you know like Mm. we even said this about Sex and City even a couple years ago when we obviously started dating and having sex ourselves (laughs) (laughs) that there are certain things that you relate to more as you get older even with like shows like Friends it's like how did I even watch that and enjoy it when I was 12 like I didn't get there were so many things that passed your butt any of the innuendos but with Sex and City I feel like as you get older especially the sexual politics becomes so much more relevant but also the the politics of being a a single woman in your 30s and 40s and and beyond that just all of those niggles 30s then was actually different to what 30s is now I think yeah we're 10 almost 10 years like I feel like being single in your 30s now I mean I don't know I'm not single in my 30s but I feel like god we what could work and live until we're 80 90 100 like mm. a lot of women have children late 30s or get married in late 30s I don't yeah. think it's necessarily although Fleabag was, was exploring that same mm. similar issues in yeah. a different and modern and often more nuanced way I feel like now given that people are getting married later people are um, you know, having relationships with both sexes, genders, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot less pressure to have this sort of nuclear family. I don't know, even today is A-level results day and I still feel like we're moving on, I think, a little, ever so slightly from this is the most important day of your life because if you don't get your grades, your life is over, which it most certainly felt like that five years ago. 
Um, I don't feel it feels like that anymore, and I still feel like well, we, we it might still feel like that for some people getting true, their results. True, but I feel but like given the, the apprenticeship, pressure. the apprenticeship programs, the fact that these huge corporate companies are taking people straight from school now, I think that it the sort of culture and the workplace looks different than it did five years ago. Yeah, I agree. Um, and and same with relationships. Sorry, that was a huge loop, but back to that point yes mm. it is very good sex and city it is it's very very good so i've been enjoying the fringe and the mm. edinburgh book festival for the last two yes, weeks yes i saw your instagrams on that um the edinburgh book festival is mm. incredible and i deliberately stopped myself from looking up who's coming now that i'm not in edinburgh because i know that i'm going to get book fomo, FOMO. yeah but the people I did see were Mary Portas, who wrote the book Work Like a Woman, saw her last night. Um, and it was just such a rally cry to change workplace culture and be more mm. compassionate, be more empathetic, be more flexible totally. and embrace This those... is kind of what I mean, is that the yeah. whole thing, the whole culture changing. Even five years ago, mm-hmm. I don't think we were talking about women working, about male paternity leave, about any of this stuff. Yeah. Flexible working. Yeah. It's, it's still it's so still far. not happening fast enough and oh, it's still no, not loud not. enough mm. but she is leading the way and I really really admire her and have so much time for her. Mm. Um I also saw a brilliant opening event which was with Kit Deval, Stig Abel who sometimes presents front row mm. and Alexander McCall Smith. And they are three out of the six people who've been selected by the BBC to pull up this list of 100 novels that shaped our world. So it's not necessarily one of those quite annoying must-read lists or 100 Mm. books to read before you die and Mm. you've got War and Peace on there and that's going to take you... uh, 50 years. Yes, exactly. Half your life. Um, (laughs) Exactly. I haven't even attempted it. Can't be bothered. Not going to. No. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that's although a lie. I, do... I actually am really curious to read it, to be fair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I would say I'd take it to a desert island, but then... Yeah, no, I it'd think... be good for a desert island because you'd eventually get bored and have to read it. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so the other people on this panel are Mariella Frostrop, um, Juno Dawson and Siam Aslam. And they are looking at books in a very different way and that they're trying to... It's quite individual because obviously everybody has novels that have shaped their world that are very personal to a certain place Mm. or a certain time that they were reading it or something that really clicked with them because of something that's happened in their past or a person they recognised or whatever. But they're trying to identify common books that have moulded the way that we think or Mm. society so for example train spotting will be on that list um and they talked about how it became quite memeable before memes even existed with the Mm. whole choose life speech yeah um and the other ones that i know are on there are things like pride so they have got some classics they've got pride and prejudice you kind of need the you do that's why they're classics yes yeah but it must be a very interesting task to have to pull out which ones are classics and relatable and readable and are going to have a tangible impact on people and which ones are classics but don't fall into that same Mm. category for lots of people which novels would go on your list if you were choosing some novels that have shaped your world um lolita really yes oh my god have you read it no yeah okay karen gave that to you it's intense yeah um so what did it change about your outlet? Firstly, outlook. It's bu- so beautifully written, and he is an incredible author. That was one of their requirements. That, Everything has to be beautifully oh, written. That when you that when you read it, you just feel like you're drinking some kind of elixir of. Just, yeah, it's just so good. Like it's very well written, um, and so you learn a lot from that in itself. The subject matter is very. Um, kind of awful. It's sort of probably one of the worst things that you could read about, really. Um, and so I think that's really interesting. Um, Remind me what happens. I do know roughly, but... I kind of don't really want to tell you. Okay. So you kind of ruin it. But the reason I was given the book was I was very shook by all of the paedophilia things that came out about Michael Jackson. Um, and my friend... Um, gave me this book and said, read this from the perspective of the paedophile. And I was like, oh, okay. 
Yes, because that's probably one of the most abhorrent things someone can be, yeah. right? Is a, yeah. Is a paedophile. And they're all everywhere. Um, you know, you hear about it in schools all the time. And it's really interesting to hear mm. what, from that perspective. What is it? What's the draw? What's the drive? Um, again, as someone who finds relationships, sex, that sort of thing really interesting, why we're attracted to who we're attracted to, why mm. we are in relationships. So, so that's something that I find very interesting, although it's obviously very disturbing as well. Yeah. A book that I think you might find fascinating is called The Incurable Romantic, and it mm. was written by a man who is a trained psychotherapist, mm. but also, I don't know if he's written novels, but he's certainly a very good writer. Mm. And he has based each chapter on a certain patient that he had oh my god that sounds like something i really need to read it is it's similar to um uh where shall we begin in that you yeah. are like a fly on the wall in oh, their yeah i've been listening in to their therapy this, sessions this couple of weeks the audible one uh but it's just god some of the the things that come up of the the complexities of the mind that he's having to process and try and work mm. through with these people is so compelling it really draws you in it's really really interesting mm-hmm. and one of the chapters is are with a paedophile yeah but it's an he just i think he titles it the innocent paedophile in that he's never acted on these urges mm. but he very much feels attracted to children and one child in particular yeah. and knows that it is awful and wrong yeah. and hates himself for it yeah and but can't change it i know that's the problem yeah like I'd, yeah Have you seen um, Spotlight? No. This was a film, and I cannot believe that I haven't seen it until a couple of weeks ago. Um, It's on Netflix. It's Mm. got a brilliant cast, um, including Rachel McAdams, and it is about this group of investigative journalists at a newspaper in Boston, and they look at the popes and priests and people in the Catholic Church who have been... Um, molesting young boys and girls Mm. and have completely got away with it and the institutionalised paedophilia that comes and is still going on. It's one of those films where you watch it and then you look up when it came out and you can't work out why Mm. you haven't heard about it Mm. and why it hasn't put a sort of complete stop yeah, it's absolutely mind-blowing. This is the thing that's fascinating about human beings, is like, why do we do terrible things? Why do we continue to do ter- terrible things? And why Why does paedophilia happen? Why does sex trafficking happen? Why does FGM happen? Plug. Um, why, you know, why, you know, Jeffrey Epstein? I mean, it, it, it's like, okay. And, and, and I find that really interesting. Why, mm. why do we do horrible things as human beings? Mm. Um, my last recommendations before we start on our um, first figure um, are two new podcasts I've discovered. So the first one is called Headstrong and it's about mental health and mm. there's some great episodes on there. The first one is with Tiger Drew Honey who was the um, older kid in yeah. Outnumbered and his parents both worked in the porn industry. And he talks very candidly about what that was like growing up with that knowledge and then how it was actually completely normal because they'd never really made a show Mm. of it. And then it was sort of on reflection that he looked back at parts of his um, upbringing or parts of how he was treated at school. It's very um, self-reflective conversation to listen to um and the other one is is this working with um anna cogiorado and tiffany philippou who are both freelance writers and they cover things their first episode is fantastic it's about time and our attitude towards time and how changing the language about it is a really good tip in that instead of saying i don't have time you say that's not my priority mm. because you actually do have time for everything. You just yeah. prioritize things in certain order. Because you'll make you you will make time for things that are really, really, really like important mm. or that you deem really, really important. Not you can't always, but you yeah, do exactly. Um, I've been really enjoying that. Oh, and, and birth. There's a new podcast by Clemmy Hooper called Birth Stories, which I've listened to. Yes. Yeah. I've got that downloaded, and I haven't listened to that mm. yet. Um, I've also been listening to the new Waterstones podcast, which I think you'd really like. Um, I've been on a total 
stalking through podcasts of David Nichols since reading Sweet Sorrow, which is just such a stunning novel. I think you'd really... Well, I don't know if you'd really like it. I think I like it as much as I do because I'm obsessed with Romeo and Juliet and Mm. Shakespeare and the way that this man can craft language, both Shakespeare and David Nichols. Um, But I found it through looking up podcasts with him and um, the first episode was on can't remember now anyway they took they choose a topic for each episode and then they have conversation between lots of them which includes booksellers and a host and then an author and then they have extra conversations that come in so it's a really rich deep conversation Mm. with lots of different voices on certain different topics um and i listened to the one on sex earlier which had catelyn moran and candice cartier williams talking very interestingly about their experiences and how they put it into words and how they write about it. The first figure that we're going to talk about is Toni Morrison, who was a novelist, editor and teacher. Uh, She was born on the 18th of February 1931 and she died on the 5th of August in 2019, aged 88. Mm. And she is only found out about at university and I have a confession that when I heard her name and spoke to my friend Amber who was doing a whole module on her work I thought she was a man and I thought she was an English writer so I could not have been further away from what even worse I don't think I'd heard her name until she died I don't think you'll be the only one okay I also um, thought she was probably English as well. And then I then I looked into it more and I was like, oh, yeah. God. So she <sighs> is the only African-American to receive the Nobel Prize mm. for Literature um, and has also received the Pulitzer Prize for her novel um, Beloved, which came out in... Well, that was in 1988 that she got mm. that award. Um, and similar to how I felt when I discovered Maya Angelou's writing... Yeah, me too. I cannot Which we did believe... a similar time of year, by the way. Yeah. This time last year. I cannot believe that I have gone so long mm. and been deprived of her work. Totally. That's how, I just think, why do we not... Why was I not taught about this at school? And then why did I not realise that I could it's do that at women. university? It's, it's literally I could, women of colour. Firstly, we're not talking about any like female authors female historians, female geographers, like hardly any. If they come up, they are female historians and female authors. Let me preface it with that. Let alone a woman of colour, unless they have done something super scandalous, like what, Rosa Parks? I mean, mm. like Rosa Parks was this defiant, like, and it's like, okay, great. <laughs> um, mm. We don't have Martin Luther King in that same category. It's like, oh, what a hero. And Nelson mm. Mandela. Um, but all female activists seem to be just these sort of fine women so I'm not surprised that we haven't heard of her to be honest well I'm very glad that I have now and Mm. I started reading The Bluest Eye which has Mm. her first novel um started reading it today and she wrote this novel um it got the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1993 but she wrote this while she was the mother of two children and she was a full-time editor for Random House in New York and she wrote this and I just even that in itself, before you yeah, even pick it up, you're just, okay, <laughs> defiance, resilience. Yeah, multi Time management, management. prioritisation. Yeah. Um, but I also just wanted to read a tiny bit. I've, I'm very, I've literally only read 25 pages, but I'm really enjoying what I've read so far. But I folded down a page earlier. I think that Jenny Murray interviewed her in... Mm, um, I listened to that. Did you? Yeah. On Women's Hour. Um, years and years and years ago. Jenny Murray's voice sounds really different, don't it you It does, think? yes. It sounded like a different person. Yeah. Um, but she says that uh, Toni Morrison plays with words in the same way that Miles David... Who plays did, with music. Plays with music yeah. and notes as a jazz musician. Mm. And this is what I... Well, this is actually about dancing, but this is um, on page nine, so it's very early in, and the bluest eye is kind of looking at identity and blackness and coming to terms with that and feeling comfortable in your own skin from what I can read from the very few pages that I have. Um, But this is an extract that I thought was really beautiful. It's talking about um, the main character's 
parents, I think. Their conversation is like a gently wicked dance. Sound meets sound, curtsies, shimmies and retires. Another sound enters, but it is upstaged by still another. The two circle each other and stop. Sometimes their words move in lofty spirals, other times they take strident leaps, and all of it is punctuated with warm-pulsed laughter, like the throb of a heart made of jelly. And on the front of the book, it says, so charged with pain and wonder that the novel becomes poetry, which is from the New York Times. Mm. And that just totally captures how she wrote. Totally. I think there was an extract from Beloved that they, they read in, as part of the interview in On Woman's Hour, and that was also similar. Mm. and how it sounded mm. what else did you find out about her that uh, resonated with you um, the, the sto- I was really interested in the story um, for, I haven't read Beloved but the storyline in mm. Beloved um, and sort of the slave trade mm. and the fact that we don't really know much about that still yeah I don't know about you, but like I hear it and I'm like, oh, I actually couldn't really well, tell you much. The way that I think about other than my... re- reading British, I was like, exactly. oh, that was re- I was yeah. really educated in that. Totally. So yeah. British is by um, is a mem- kind of historical memoir by F. Hirsch, and it covers everything from dating as a black woman today in mm. British society to slavery to the British education system, which mm-hmm. totally glosses over so much mm-hmm. of the bruises and the um, Britain's pl- like part to play in the whole system. Totally. Um, I just remember hearing about uh, what was he called, William the something. Yeah, Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, that's yeah. the one. Um, I was thinking of William the Conqueror there. <laughs> nope, about a thousand years out. <laughs> <laughs> Come on to that one later on. Um, yeah, but there were just there were so many black activists who played a huge role in the ending of slavery slavery didn't even end really until I don't know, it, the legacies continues to date we still see though the sort of systemized Systemic problems yeah because of that um but in beloved uh the reason it's called beloved is that this was the word on the tombstone of the child that the main character kills who mm. is her own daughter mm. and the reason for this is so that she's not repossessed into slavery yeah and it just got me thinking the whole way home I was like would I do that you know what I could probably be driven to that because also when we're talking about slavery especially with women we're not just talking about labour here we're talking about sex slavery we're talking about the fact that you don't own any part of your body or identity Mm. and I don't think I would want my daughter to go through that to be honest yeah Mm. it's it's the sort of plot line that um made me catch my breath before yeah, I'd even exactly um even bought a copy of the book totally. and actually to the point where when I was choosing which book to read um chose I'm re- against it I yeah I chose I, see, I would chose it yeah to, I, cho- to, to, I chose to, to start with it. the bluest eye yeah. um and I'd quite like to read um God Help the Child which was her last novel published in 2015 um, which explores similar themes to the bluest eye from what I can understand and looks mm. at the issue of colorism in that even within black communities there's this level of hierarchy that can mm. be seen that the darker you are the sort of I don't know the yeah Asian society has the same so like you want to have white as white as skin as possible because yeah darker skin means that you've been in the field more and therefore you're more likely I don't know if this same but like more like to mm. be rice paddy or like work in labor mm-hmm. because you so it was a reflection outside. of status reflection of status okay. for sure um yeah i find that whole um issue really really interesting and um it was covered very well in slay on your lane um mm. by yomi adegoke and elizabeth uber Beneni, um which i'd really recommend to anyone who everyone actually just everyone Sadiq Khan said it he was like everyone should read this book Mm. um and I really agree with that there's so much that you can learn about the experiences of what it is to be a black woman in the UK and other parts of the world as well do you think had Toni Morrison passed away um 10 years 10 years ago we would have not had as much conversation because I feel that I feel like do you think she would so she would have been set had her life would have been celebrated in a different way totally. if it had come to an end yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know. I think that 
she i i see why you're saying that but i think mm. that because i feel like maybe we've got the this audience... retrospective of my angelou and yeah like, people that we just like and oprah winfrey who totally. was totally yeah who was um she played a part in the adaptation of beloved mm. um which was called dreaming emmett Mm. Um, which was a play um, in 1986. Um, yeah, I think maybe the conversation is louder and broader, but I think that her work is so well respected by so many people and has completely shaped the way that they see certain aspects of American society, the way that they put words together, the poetry of prose, that I always think she would have been mm. sort of celebrated as a great, great novelist. Um, but yeah, there've been some really great reflective pieces, especially from F. Hirsch, actually. So this was, she talks very, um, poignantly in her memoir about how she couldn't recognise herself in anybody virtually living in Mm. Wimbledon, um, where she grew up and always having this question posed, where are you from? And the answer was, I'm from Wimbledon. But yeah. they always expected her yeah, to say... Yeah, my friend Maggie has that all the time. Yeah. She's Korean, but she gets that all the time. Yeah. yeah. And it yeah. never it doesn't come from a malicious place, but it no. just is a... a She's also like, I'm from Wimbledon. Yeah. <laughs> from London. I'm English. Yeah. I've been to Korea like four times. <laughs> People are like, what? Yeah. They don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so Hirsch talks about how... What Toni Morrison's work meant to her. Mm. And... Um, and then goes through certain different works and um, and talks about Toni Morrison's ability to talk about the dead and ancestors and ghosts and sort of bring up things that lots of other people might shy away from. Mm. Um, and there was a quote that ended the obituary that I read by Lynn Innes, um, which was actually part of Toni Morrison's Nobel Prize speech and it says we die that may be the meaning of life but we do language that may be the measure of our lives which I thought was such a well put together quote Um, but one thing that I did discover that I thought was very interesting was that Tony was short for Anthony which was the Catholic name that she took because she became a Catholic when she was 12 and her the name that she was born with was Chloe Wofford and then Morrison was her husband's name and she divorced him after not very many years. But she didn't actually want Morrison to be on the the book, The Bluest Eye, which was her first. But by the time she called up, they'd already printed it. Oh, wow. Funny I know. that, isn't it? And then yeah. that stuck, yeah. her name. But it made me compare her to people who I've also thought have been men for so long I know. until I look into them, such as Lee Krasner, mm-hmm. who, again, was a woman yeah, yeah. abstract expressionist artist and and it also makes me question you know and some people did that deliberately and there may have been a deliberate yeah, element the Bronte to that sisters. The Bron- well george Eliot. yeah um yeah and and i the again it's that question of the would we be talking about her in the same way if this has happened ten, if she died 10 years ago would we talk about her work at all in the same way had she had a different name Mm. second figure that we are going to be talking about today is that 140 million women globally have undergone female genital mutilation um and whilst i actually didn't know that fact (laughs) i know a lot about fgm and the different types of fgm and i actually didn't realize how many different types of fgm there are and quite how graphically that goes um, do you want to explain it? Yeah. I think it's kind of important. I feel... <sighs> so grim. Yeah. It actually makes but from me an education, flinch yeah. thinking about but it. But from an education point of view, I mm. feel that it is important I listen to a lot to of Nimco Ali talking about this. Absolutely. And this um, is where the stat comes from. So yeah. this and she is from her had, book. She had the third type of yeah. v- FGM, which is your... Everything is sewn up. So it's the partial removal of the clitoris and the outer labia, and then they sew. Yeah, that's the first part is partial yeah. uh, removal of the clitoris, then the labia, yeah. second stage, third stage, they do that, and they sew you up. Yeah. Um, and she nearly died of complications doing to do with that, because when you don't 
when you can't expel urine and blood from a period as well you get bacteria infections and things and she nearly died of that um but for anyone who doesn't know nimco ali is um an anti-fgm activist and author mm-hmm. of the book uh, what we're told not to talk about but we're going to anyway and i recently finished reading that book and would again highly recommend it mm. for the diversity of experiences and voices and the taboo smashing in the each section they cover a different aspect of women's identities or bodies so Mm. they talk about periods orgasms masturbation pregnancy and menopause and there are 42 women who are interviewed and their dialogues so she says in the introduction we've had them vagina monologues this is the vagina dialogues and she interviewed 152 women for this Mm. book and then 42 of them she recorded all the conversations and then wrote them up. So it's a very um, very open, sometimes quite jokey, but a very intimate way of reading about someone's experience. So for example, there's a homeless woman who um, has to often make the decision between do I eat or do I buy a sanitary towel? Mm. Um, and all sorts of experiences of menopause and the hormones kind of coming crashing and just feeling completely lost and at sea and then complications with pregnancy and I learned a lot from people that I wouldn't have had those conversations with myself by reading this book yeah yeah um I think one of the saddest things that I sort of concluded and heard a lot about when uh, researching this was the argument against FGM is going to be economic and it's going to be education. Um, Not the brutality of the act itself, because a lot of powerful men and powerful people that either run this sort of communities or run the countries and this sort of happens in, it's not really going to make, you know, you're not going to convince them that it's a cruel thing to do. But what you are going to do is actually prove that if we educate women, if women have children later, mm. actually that's better for the economy and the planet. Mm. Um, and we're stopping, you know, pre- pushing it later that we um, have these women undergo these procedures. It's kind of sad that that's the case, that it's not recognised as that's something. that's the way of combating it. Yeah. But it will be the way of combating it. It is the way of combating it. Yeah. But it's sad that... Well, my point is that it's sad that someone can't just go oh, let's not sew up a woman's vagina and make her feel like, I don't know. But yeah. There must be some shame attached to, to that. Huge amount of shame. You're... And I think that's what is interesting about Nimco Ali's approach in that she had this when she was seven mm. um, and she immediately went and told her teacher. And what is even more shocking is that her teacher was not didn't want to go and report it or help her or in any way they she described it as the equivalent of a bar mitzvah because of Nimco's heritage from Somaliland yeah, yeah, yeah. um which I found just so sad I know but that's kind of how it's um, that someone had had yeah. not felt that shame and had gone yeah. and talked to somebody about yeah. it and then they weren't actually able to help but I think I was listening to a program on the um beyond today where they went into the case of the first mother who's been convicted of yeah. FGM um, yeah, in the UK. That. So yeah. that was earlier this year. Um, and she was found guilty of um, giving her three-year-old daughter FGM. Um, but it's been legal for 30 years in the UK, but they still estimate that there is 137,000 victims in England, which is the whole population of Cambridge. Wow. Um, and what they talked about is that everything is not joined up in that the police are not, not all police stations are recording people who are reporting it. The doctors aren't able to talk to the police, aren't able to talk to the social worker. So mm. it's all just very disjointed. Is that because it's confidential? I think that it's more of a, a taboo and something that we have, that we haven't really been talking mm. about or... Even, even from like my experience with doctors, like you you may not even want to talk to a male... If you have a male doctor about something, you're not going to want to talk to them about it. You don't even want to talk to a male doctor about... Anything. Anything, really. Mm. <laughs> Unless it's something very perfunctory. Like, I don't know. You just wouldn't... So, I... Yeah. Mm. But hopefully that is going to change and um, 
Nimco Ali is the co-founder of Daughters of Eve, of Eve yeah. and um, the Five Foundation, mm. and she's got a plan in place to eradicate FGM by twenty thirty, mm. um, which she sort of worked out that without anything changing, seventy million girls will be at risk yeah. at the rate that it currently is. But that the biggest risk factor is when the mother has also undergone FGM. Yeah, because then they think it's normal. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't want their daughter to be different, I guess. Yeah. Um, And also they probably just told a lot of... Well, they are told a lot of things that would happen if you didn't have it, if they didn't have it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So actually education on that level of women who have Mm. had that happen to them is hugely important. Totally. Um... Because that's where the mindset starts to change. Totally. And her argument is that why do we want to educate women? We want to educate women so they have children later on in life, so they probably learn that that's not the best thing. Why is that important to do? Uh, because they in- will invest in their local economy and local community more than men. They're more likely to do that mm. um, and more likely to give back to their community and keep the community going. Mm. Um, so that's why people should actually invest in it stopping. Um, and that would improve the economy generally rather than like, obviously it's a, an important thing. I just, I just couldn't get my hands around the fact that that's how we, that's how we argue that that's, and I, she also said something in Ali did about, she's like, people say offensive things all the time, but I don't get offended by them because I can, I can control what offends me. And I was like, oh my God, that is a really profound thing to say because people say offensive things all the time and there's so many sexist things I hear all the time, all the time, even from men in my family. And I get so offended, bent out of shape, really emotional, hot-headed and confront... I get so... Yeah. And I actually, I think... But is that a bad thing? No, yes, because they're not going to take me seriously. If I erupt... It's like, oh, Georgia, da, da, da. It's like, if I can actually try to not get that offended reaction and actually present trying... the actual argument as to why yeah. what they're saying is incorrect, so much more effective. Yeah, I guess it is more effective, but I don't like the idea that you're having to sort of repress emotions mm. or, or try and mould yourself into something that's maybe more socially acceptable in their eyes in order to present an argument to get your point across. But do you, when do you listen to anyone who's, who's getting hot-headed and shouting at you? You don't. True. Like, that's just not a way to present an argument, and that's Nimco Ali's point, is that mm. you can't actually be offended by people's views on this sort of thing. You actually have to say, right, actually, this is how it's going to improve people's lives in this way. Yeah. Um, just before we end, I wanted to mention far, uh, so a couple of other activists who are also working to end FGM um so Purity Swanato Oi I'm gonna pronounce that horribly but I actually heard something that made me feel so much better about mispronouncing things it said if you mispronounce something it means that you're a reader and that you've read it and you haven't heard it so I haven't been able to find out how to say her name but she is a Maasai um she's from the Maasai tribe in Kenya and she was the first girl to say no to FGM in her village. She was going to be the fifth wife to a 70-year-old man when she was aged 10. What? Yep. And um, she went and lived in a rescue centre. Um, and she has become a huge activist, educating her, the local people, leading big groups, talking about it, not being ashamed of it. She's someone that I really admire. Um, there's also Jana Dukure, who's a UN woman ambassador for Africa. She underwent type three as well, same as Ninko. Um, and she actually started her activism anonymously when she moved to New York to get married and found that she couldn't consummate the marriage because you need to be, it's called de-infibulated, I think, where they unstitch you. Um... And so she started that activism when she was pregnant and it was online and then has garnered a real uh, momentum around her in the States. Um, And the final person is Elizabeth Thomas Monico from Tanzania who fled her village um, to escape um, FGM and is one of many girls who've done this. But I think 
from what I've read, the conversation is changing. There are fewer women. There are more people who are waking up to the kind of cultural um, inheritance, I guess, of this tradition. Mm. And what I found really encouraging is that within Nimco's family, there are now 11 girls who are uncut, which is now more than the women who are cut. So just within one generation and the conversation changing and talking about it and saying, no, we're not going to be ashamed of this Mm. and this is really harmful and really wrong and inhumane, we can do something about it. The final figure that we're going to talk about today is an image of the Tower of London, which was where Georgia went to recently, and I'm now going to quiz you on everything that you learnt. Great. So, the only things I know is that it was built by William the Conqueror in 1078. Yes. Well, the White Tower, yes. And that it became a prison from 1100 to 1952, and that it was a zoo. Yes. That's it. What else did you discover? (laughs) (laughs) So, yes. So, the Tower of London was built in 1078 by William the Conqueror. William the Conqueror came, or William of Normandy, um, came to England in... uh, He landed um, on the 28th of September, 1066. um, From France. From Normandy, yep. And defeated Harold Godwinson, who was king, um, at the Battle of Hastings, that famous old battle um <laughs> so he came to london and as you do very much uh consolidated his power not only did he do this in london but all over england so so many castles you see would have been built by william of normandy uh, or william the first um and it's he does it in a very with stone um with a moat it's very secure tower mm. of london subsequently is probably one of the most secure castles in England um, and we'll go more into that more later on because they had so many kind of types of prisoners and so many different uses for it um, he started with the White Tower and I think there are over 30 towers now so there's a lot it's, it was added to over the years by various kings interesting yeah and is the White Tower actually white yes it is <laughs> It's very big. It's where all the armour is kept. Okay. Um, and you can see just how small people were back then, because obviously oh, yeah. the armour is like, it looks like it's my height. Like Henry VIII looked about my height, and he had, for like where his like penis is, he had this massive, like protective, I don't know what it's called, like a cock piece or something. Oh, really? Yeah, it's ridiculous. What was part of his armour? Yeah, and sorry, this is a really massive generalisation, and I'm really sorry, but my initial thought was, for fuck's sake, men. <laughs> <laughs> like why? Well, it's being practical. Yeah. It's like an important no. part of their anatomy, so they wanted to protect it. Totally, the crown jewels. No pun what, intended. What are the crown jewels like? Okay, so the crown jewels are there. They are probably worth fifty billion pounds in total. Um, it's very cool. You go into the room and you you're on this sort of conveyor belt, and you look across all the different crowns that the kings and queens of England um, have had. And you, um, the, one of the tour guides got us to look, well, any women there who had, like, engagement rings got them to, like, look at the, get their engagement rings before they went in. And the reason he did that was just as, like, a size comparison. So, like, you see an engagement ring, say, like, an average size engagement ring is, what, a pretty big diamond relatively, right? Like, it's pretty... Depending on who you're with, yeah. Pretty, like... Yeah, no, it's big. It's a bit, you know, big jewel. Like, if you isolated that without a ring attached to it, it'd be pretty cool to see a diamond like that. And then you just go into the crown jewels and you're like, fuck. Like, these diamonds are, what, 20, 30, 40, 50 times bigger than a ring wow. that you'd wear on your finger. Um, God, that's some mad security that you can't even see. So how does the security work now? And how does it used to work? And why is it so secure? Um, it's really secure because... One, it had a moat. Two, it has, I mean, really, really tall walls, um, doors. Um, like by doors, I mean the sort of drawbridge gate, things. Drawbridges and gates. Okay. Um, it the River Thames used to be a lot wider than it what is now. I think it was Edward the Third that pushed back 
the river oh. and therefore the tower of london sort of like main entrance is now like kind of like it's kind of random it's sort of like to two-thirds of the side of the building um and it's where you'd be sort of tried at the palace of westminster or whitehall and then you'd have this sort of boat of shame down the river <laughs> um, and then you'd be met by the guards and taken into the tower um and yeah it's pretty awful there's torture equipment in there um i forgot oh my god i've forgotten which ki- which king it was that locked 178 prisoners um in one of the dungeons and just left them there for 28 days <gasps> and they just died um and you can go in there and see that a lot of political prisoners and by political back then i mean like enemies of the sovereign so um, so people who considered traitors yeah, and who considered traitors. treason yeah okay um a, a common misconception about the tower of london is that they like had public beheadings like in the tower they didn't they were it was on tower hill so like kind of where the tube station is okay um you'd have public beheadings and then they would parade your head around the city of london and then they put it on london bridge gate and a fun fact that i found out was that when they fun this, fact about her beheadings yeah about the bridge is that london bridge in the 1960s and 70s um by then obviously very old it was like a thousand year old bridge a very wealthy man from arizona came and literally bought the bridge so what yeah he bought london bridge packaged it up it's now back in arizona like on a random river and then funded it to be rebuilt and when archaeologists you're kidding no no i'm being serious and when archaeologists were um kind of building it obviously you have to have it stable into the ground and they found hundreds i think over 500 skulls at the bottom of the river because obviously all the heads you know just fallen off into the river from all the beheadings whoa yeah that is disgusting but also really interesting i know (laughs) and and then if you were really important sort of someone like lady jane gray or anne boleyn um you so were they beheaded at tower hill no they were on a scaffold inside the grounds because they were royal or more important okay yeah um i talk about anne boleyn quite a lot that she was quite you know refused to apologize for anything you know she was falsely accused of all of this stuff Mm. essentially because she couldn't have a you know a son yeah henry needed to get rid of her um and several years later uh her daughter um was imprisoned in the tower as we know um touching briefly on the life of Elizabeth I, her older sister Mary, who was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon and King Henry VIII, locked Princess Elizabeth in the Tower of London, I think for three months or six months, um, because she was convinced that they were conspiring against her. Um, Obviously, Princess Elizabeth was Church of England or Protestant, and Mary wanted to to make England Catholic again after the Mm. Reformation. They found no evidence, they had to let her go. And Elizabeth I reigned in Britain for 54 years and only entered the tower once. And that was on her coronation, like every monarch Wow. Because if you think about it, you, you wouldn't want to go back to the place that you were no. imprisoned. And you wouldn't want to go back to the place where your mother was beheaded. No. So she never went in 54 years once. And she was there for under half an hour, I think, just to like walk to where the crown jewels were. Or, or the, yeah. to walk to some kind of chapel. Um so so who are the other key kings and queens who have kind of stories wrapped up with the tower of london um good question i'll touch briefly on richard iii um which is why um i think i said earlier mentioned briefly in the intro about listening to turek dr turek king so richard iii um was quite a famous king he was involved in the Battle of Bosworth and the fight between the House of Lancaster and the House of York, which had gone on for generations before him, um, and basically trying to hash out the seat of power, as you do. Um, and Richard III was the brother of Henry V, and he died and can i just say georgia is doing this whole thing with no notes and i cannot believe how much you remember 
<laughs> you are so obsessed with kings and queens. Okay, of I, I hope love that it. everyone is list, uh, following. Am I? Yes. No. Are you totally, following? I'm okay. transfixed. I cannot believe how much I don't know about kings and queens of England. Continue. Okay. With Richard the Third. Okay, so Richard the Third was the second son, um, and his brother the king dies, and his eldest son, Richard, I believe. Um, is 12 and his other son is 9 and they're brought to London with their mother from Ludlow Castle and um, they're kept at Westminster Abbey and then Richard has this, the, the boys brought to the tower where he's looking after them and he's sort of regent and a regent is someone who rules when um, an heir is too young and um, the boys just disappear and I'm um, pretty certain that he killed them. Why wouldn't he? Like, that's how he's going to get the throne. Mm. Um, sorry, Richard III Society, uh, who disagree with this. <laughs> um, but, and this is what the Shakespeare play is about. Yeah, about him. And Shakespeare doesn't write very favourably about Richard III. And they say he was a hunchback and evil. He has scoliosis, so potentially had a you know, bit of a hunch... Mm. Um, and then he died in the Battle of Bosworth, which is a really significant battle because that's when Henry Tudor, mm. who'd been living in exile um, for years in France, comes back and claims the throne. And he has got a claim through Margaret Beaufort, his mother, and also his father, Edmund Tudor. Um, and then he eventually marries Richard III's sister. Very clever because then you're joining the families together and therefore your heir is mm. literally going to be an heir of both the House of York Marriage and the House a of tool Lancaster. Of power. Huge tool. And also what was really interesting listening to all the uh, genetic genealogy um, stuff was often I think it's one to two percent of every generation will have a non paternity case, which means that not the dad. And that happens in every family. Mm. Uh, one to two percent. And um, it's like, oh yeah, that would have happened. No one can test anything. No one had any phones or connections. Family, yeah. Royal family. Even mm. families like ours, there'll be, you know, mm. non-paternity cases there because no one could test it. You didn't know. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the brutality of that time mm, with beheadings, good question. Yeah. Um, is it something that you find, that you want to find out more about or that you completely... I almost can't believe it happened. It's it's so weird. I, I don't know about you, but I, I just can't imagine. We have so... I mean, our human rights and how we treat each other and our democracy is so, so, so good in this country in comparison to what it was yeah. then. So I saw a production of Notre Dame, A Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, based on the book by Victor Hugo at the Fringe, and it's so good. I'd really mm. recommend to anyone to go to see it, but bring blankets and hot water bottles because it's very cold and it's outside. But they have a goat as well in this, and they mm. have horses, and it's acrobatic. And But yeah, what I was going to say, the story is so... It's so strange to me to look at something where hangings, beheadings... Yeah burning it was all entertainment i know but yeah public it was public and also it doesn't actually feel like it was that long ago oh, I in know. the grand schemes of human history even the french revolution doesn't feel like that yeah long ago. i kind of think of horrible violent brutal entertainment as romans yeah and and that feels far enough away but mm. then when you think about what happened at the tower of london what mm-hmm. happened at notre dame and across europe Totally. It's just, it's quite baffling. Yeah. Oh no, it is. It completely is. I feel like very much in denial about it. Like I, I kind of said, I just can't believe that that even happened. Yeah. Even fighting like on sword with swords on like horses, like that seems <laughs> bizarre. Like, because sh- obviously they didn't have meetings to like discuss anything. <laughs> I mean, maybe, obviously their diplomats would have gone and, you know, you have various people, but it's it's very different to that. You know, people just have it out or murder people or or poison people um, back then. So what is your final fun fact about Tower of London? Okay, after World War II, Rudolf Hess, do you know the name? No. Very prominent Nazi. Okay. A very famous Nazi. um, He was brought to the Tower in 1941 and he was kept prisoner there for years um was then yeah (laughs) and while he was there as a prisoner underground the like 
head of the tower, I can't remember the name, lived on top. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Figure. You can contact us uh, at thefigurepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram or on Twitter at figurepodcast. And the final note that we'd like to leave you with is if you like listening to this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe, as always. But also, we are running the half marathon in London in October Uh. in aid of (laughs) Young Women's Trust. Um, who are an organisation that support women under 30 who are on low pay or no pay and they give them CV workshops, coaching, um, they do lots of research and lobbying within government to raise awareness for gender inequality and we are going to be running further than we have ever run in our lives. Um, well, there we go. But the, the link to, to us. sponsor us um, is in the show notes and we would so appreciate yes, any money five, that you can give to five us. £5 or yes. £10, literally. Yeah. Um, and we're also running it with two amazing friends of ours who have also have actually done marathon and a half marathon this year already. Um, so we're already being shown up. We haven't even got to the starting totally, line. <laughs> totally. <laughs> but in, until two weeks' time. Until two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.